Well, thank you so much, Doug, and thank you to everyone at the BBA for continuing to support um, our programming around pro bono representation of veterans with less than honorable discharges. Um, this is now, I believe, our seventh training, um, and it's been a really wonderful partnership and so wonderful to see so many of you um, continuing to come back year after year um, and to work with us to ensure that veterans who are wrongfully given less than honorable discharges have the chance for uh, to get an upgrade to achieve justice and to access the benefits and services that they earned through their service. I am really excited about today's program um, because we're discussing an issue that affects every single veteran who is seeking an upgrade um, to their discharge and is relevant to every advocate's uh, representation of those veterans, which is dealing with post-service conduct and how to frame um, equitable arguments on behalf of veterans related to um, equity, justice, and clemency. We have three wonderful panelists, um, and I will also be chiming in um, for periods of time. Um, I'll introduce them in turn. Uh, Renee Burbank is a clinical lecturer in law and Robert M. Cover clinical teaching fellow at Yale Law School, where she teaches in the Veterans Legal Services Clinic. She's also supervised census litigation in the Peter Gruber Rule of Law Clinic. Um, Renee previously worked for the Department of Justice Civil Division on cases involving eminent domain, international trade, federal employment law, military pay, and veterans benefits. She's a graduate of University of Chicago and Harvard Law School and clerked for the Honorable David Santel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Next, we have Eileen Morrison. She is a public defender in Lowell, Massachusetts. Previously, she was an associate at Goodwin Proctor in Boston. Um, where I had the pleasure of meeting her because she is one of, she was one of our inaugural, uh, inaugural uh, pro bono attorneys who volunteered in the first year that we started up this panel. Um, Eileen is a member of the Military Spouse JD Network, a bar association that connects and advocates for military spouse attorneys. She is the herself the spouse of Major Mark Kapansky, an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps Reserves. And uh, Rounding out our panel, we have Jacob Raver. He is an associate at Goodwin Proctor, um, where he was working with Eileen on this um, a pro bono matter that they will be discussing today. Um, he's a member of the firm's complex litigation and cannabis practice groups. Uh, Mr. Raver represents a, a wide range of US and international cannabis companies, including startups and multi-state operators. He is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps where he specialized in counterintelligence, human intelligence, military interrogations, and the regions of the Middle East and North Africa as a foreign affairs area officer. And he had deployed to Helmont Province, Afghanistan in 2011. So without further ado um, and wind up, let's get into today's program because I'm sure the next hour and a half is going to move by very quickly. Um, I will start by Doug, I need screen sharing abilities, if you would. Um, Pardon, Dana, one moment. No worries. <laughs> um, well, I will jump in by just telling you what our agenda is for today. Hopefully you all may have seen it ahead of time, but we are going to start with some brief updates about discharge upgrade law, including some breaking news last week about the creation of an entirely new military review board. Um, we will also then get um, 
dive into the substance of today's program about the Wilkie Memorandum and addressing post-service conduct. Um, Renee and I will sort of present an overview and then Eileen and Jacob will explain a little bit more about their own experience successfully representing a veteran who received an upgrade to fully honorable based on the clemency arguments that they made. Um, and then we'll sort of all dive into discussing some of the strategy about how to think about presenting a veteran's case based on the Wilkie Memorandum. All right, thank you, Doug. All right, everyone can see the slides. So here's a, and we will circulate these slides, I believe, if they haven't already to everyone after the program. So here it is, um, and we will leave time at the end for questions. So please do feel free to chime in with um, your questions by putting them in the Q&A box, and we may address some of them at the moment, um, or we may wait and sort of save them to the end. But we definitely are encouraging you all to ask your questions um, and to be um, participate in the discussion. Moving quickly into our updates, uh, just last week, the Department of Defense announced that it is creating a new military review board called the Discharge Appeals Review Board. Um, the official acronym will be DARB, although I believe very quickly we will all go into naming it the Super Board because it is an additional board um, that was created in the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act that is a single board to which all service members can apply, but only after they have exhausted all other administrative remedies. So if they have the opportunity to go to the discharge review boards, they have to have gone there. Also then to the records corrections boards, and only after that can they go to this DARB. Um, their powers, um, as we currently understand them, are um, that they will be able to grant upgrades, but they will do so on the limited record that already exists. So you cannot submit new evidence to this board um, and that there will also be no personal appearances before the board. There was very little information um, that we have heard so far about this board. Basically everything we know is on this slide. Um, uh, there's not even a place yet to apply to the board. Um, there will be uh, via this Air Force uh, website. So as we learn more information, we certainly will bring it to everyone as a group who is part of our pro bono panel, and we'll sort of try to start figuring out the strategy. But for now, just wanted to put this on people's radar screen that for uh, service members going forward, this may be a strategic consideration as whether to seek um, an appeal to this board at any point. Next, as a policy update, many of you may already have seen that the new administration has um, uh, changed policies regarding the open service by service members who identify as transgender, um, that they no longer should be separated on the basis of gender identity, that there's a prohibition on discrimination on the basis of gender identity, and that there will be provision of medical care. Um, that is, or care that is medically necessary to transgender service member. 
So most relevant to the issue of discharge upgrades is that any service members who were discharged based on their gender identity um, under prior policies um, may, there should be forthcoming guidance about what remedies they might be entitled to, whether they can be enlist, and um, whether their records should be corrected, presumably through the military review boards. Um, we haven't yet seen that guidance published, but certainly if and when it comes out, we can share it with everyone. And with that, I will turn it over to Renee um, because I have reported at multiple uh, past uh, trainings on the um, two uh, discharge upgrade class actions relating to Army and then Navy and Marine Corps um, post 9-11 veterans, um, uh, the Kennedy and Manger class actions. And now Renee, who actually is, a, is one of the class counsel in both cases, can give you those updates because um, there have there's been a lot going on over the past year. Yes, uh, thank you, Dana. Um, as Dana mentioned, the Yale Veterans Legal Services Clinic has been litigating these along with our co-counsel at Jenner. Um, and in the Kennedy class action, which is related to the Army Discharge Review Board and its policies and practices, um, the parties have reached a, a proposed settlement agreement. It's been preliminarily approved by the court and we um, just a couple of weeks ago had a fairness hearing um, and we are waiting for a final decision from the judge about whether to uh, approve the settlement finally um, and officially. Um, presuming it does go forward, uh, there are a lot of different changes that will affect not just the class members but also all um, former army or service members who will uh, who can apply to the Discharge Review Board. Um, the class is, as Dana said, the post 9-11 uh, uh, former soldiers who received either general or other than honorable discharges um, and who have either been diagnosed or their service records indicate some symptoms of PTSD, TBI, or other uh, behavioral health condition um, or have experience, have an experience of military sexual trauma. Um, the Army classifies these as what's known as special cases. All of these cases together constitute um, a, a different track of how the Army actually handles these cases, which is sort of why these um, disparate cases all come together um, under the, the Hegel and Curta memos. Um, so the key settlement terms are listed here. There's basically, we, we think of it as three different buckets of um, relief that the parties have agreed on. The first is um, retrospective relief for those who already applied to the DRB and were not granted the full relief they sought. So if someone had an OTH and requested an honorable but only got a general, they would be included in um, the retrospective relief. Um, if someone asked for um, only a general, an upgrade to general and did receive it, they are considered to, to have gotten full relief. So for those who did not get all of the relief they requested, um, since April 17th, 2011, that was six years before we filed the lawsuit, 
um, the Army is going to automatically reconsider those cases. It will take the evidence it already has and reconsider them. It will also notify the um, veteran of the reconsideration and particularly for those whose cases were decided prior to the Hegel memo, they will be given additional information about the importance of the memos and how additional evidence can be useful and they will be encouraged to submit additional information. Um, for veterans who were discharged uh, and had a decision from the ADRB prior to April 16th or on April 16th, 2011 or before um, who are in the class, they will be given a, a notice of the right to reapply um, and told uh, sort of, again, that information about how certain evidence may be particularly useful to them. The key here I want to just highlight is that the, this will be going to be the notice that is going to be given by the army or in some cases actually class council are going to administer these. It's going to be to the address that the ATRB has on file for the veteran. So if you represented a veteran, uh, a former soldier, and the army has an address for the uh, veteran themselves and not you, there's not going to be dual notice, they're going to send out one notice. So if this applies to one of your former clients, um, I, I personally recommend that you uh, reach out to them and make sure they're aware of it. Um, if the, the settlement is in fact approved, um, because people move, people change uh, addresses, it may be hard to get in contact with every single person here. And so your help, we would greatly appreciate. So that's the first bucket, this retrospective relief. Um, the second bucket is changes to the way the ADRB um, treats its cases. Uh, there's, there'll be training related to these types of cases particularly. There's also um, particularly changes to the way the ADRB is supposed to uh, review cases that are supposed to get liberal consideration under the Hegel and Curta memos. That includes particularly um, the decisions themselves, and this is the changes to the standard operating procedures discussed, the decisions themselves are supposed to specifically explain if they are not providing the relief requested, where the case, uh, where the application uh, failed to, to meet its standard of proof. So right now, a lot of the decisions, as we, we look through a lot of decisions and saw a lot of very short decisions where they'll sort of go through the evidence and then very quickly just say, this case does not warrant uh, the relief. And so they'll have to fully explain why, for example, if the board says, yes, there is evidence of PTSD. Yes, there's evidence that it, that it um, contributed to the misconduct, but we are deciding that it doesn't mitigate or outweigh. They have to actually explain that. Um, and then the final thing is, is this final bucket is relief that's particularly related to trying to make sure that applicants um, have better access to both making the best arguments and to the board itself. So the big one here is um, the ADRB will now have telephonic personal appearance hearings. Um, they've obviously done some of that 
during the pandemic, but this will be an official way of having um, personal appearance hearings that the applicant does not have to travel for, which is a, a big part of access. We've seen in general that those who have personal appearance hearings tend to get relief at higher rates than those who don't. Um, and then also that in all future cases, um, applicants, when they receive a notice saying we've received your um, application, they will also be provided with uh, information saying that they may want to submit medical information. If they don't have representation, they may seek representation um, and will specifically list places like the VA um, and like uh, various legal aid offices that um, they may seek to, to find some of those resources. Um, the main place that people will be sent to for legal uh, aid is to what's called uh, it's statesidelegal.org, which lists a whole bunch of providers who provide legal um, uh, resources for veterans. Um, if you are a pro bono attorney uh, and you are someone who wants to be listed with Stateside Legal, I am sure they would uh, be happy to include you. They have sort of a directory um, and uh, they, are, they seem to be the most comprehensive place for, for folks to find resources. Okay, so um, that's Kennedy where there is in fact a, a settlement uh, on the table. The class notice and the proposed settlement agreement is at this website. And um, as we learn more um, and when the court makes any sort of opinion or decision, we will certainly try to get that information out. But um, please st keep, stay up to date, especially if you have a client who falls into one of these uh, buckets. Um, last, I just wanna briefly talk about Manker. There's less to report here. Manker is the sister case to Kennedy related to the Naval Discharge Review Board. Um, the class is very similar to the Kennedy class, but includes a former Navy and Marine Corps service members. Um, and the parties are still in settlement negotiations. Those are ongoing. Um, it's on the public docket, so I can say we just had our, a, a meeting with the, the magistrate judge on Friday. So things are moving along, but are a little bit behind where we were in Kennedy. Um, and again, as we know more, we will post those things publicly and try to get the word out. Um, and uh, we encourage you to, to keep checking our, our website um, and we will try to keep that as up to date as possible. Well, thank you for the updates, Renee, and for all the work that you and um, your co-counsel and all the students uh, who are representing these veterans are doing. And absolutely, we will keep um, everyone abreast of any updates in the case. Cases. Lastly, in the updates bucket, I just wanted to make everyone aware that uh, there is a forth the forthcoming publication of an actual legal practice manual on discharge upgrade law that I and others um, at the Legal Services Center and at Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, who's our partner in this project, um, have been working on for a number of years now. So at long last, there will actually be a hundreds of page long book um, that will cover the nuts and bolts of evaluating a discharge upgrade case, putting together an application, gathering evidence, finding records, developing um, 
letters of support and then go into depth about legal arguments uh, that you can make in the cases. So we're really excited that this should be coming out in the next couple of months. And we'll certainly um, give you more information about uh, when that is to be to happen. Um, the American Bar Association will be uh, helping us publish this and get it out into the world. And thank you so much to many of you on the panel who took uh, looks at some of the early drafts of the chapters and gave us feedback. Um, it's definitely better for your input. And hopefully will help elevate the practice that we of all of us. All right, so let us turn into um, our main agenda item today, which is thinking about how to craft arguments based on post-service conduct and the Wilkie Memorandum. With that, I will turn it over to Renee again to give a little bit of an overview and background. Yeah, um, I just wanna shout out yes to the comment of how awesome uh, for the manual. We're all very excited to see that actually come into the world. Um, and also just wanna give a plug for if you um, don't want, want to put something in the Q&A, which will only come to the panelists. If you want something for everyone, please do put it in the chat. Um, we are more than happy to, to sort of have a, a chat going on the side as well um, that you guys can, can sort of be part of a discussion rather than just sending in questions to us. Um, so on the Wilkie memo, which is really how um, I think about the way the boards are at least supposed to be thinking about these cases. Um, Post-service conduct is part of how the boards are considering the equity prong or the justice prong of their, um, of their mandates. So when we are thinking about equity, uh, the boards don't really come at it from a clemency perspective specifically, but it is a background understanding that particularly the BCM and NRs have uh, regarding their ability to change records um, because those, uh, those boards do have clemency authority um, as does the DRB with in relation to certain types of court-martial um, discharges. So clemency is like in the criminal justice context, um, mostly related to post-service records and basically saying that um, based on how the person has behaved since the, uh, the discharge or in the criminal justice context since a conviction should be grounds for relief, um, basically saying that the, um, the conviction was unfair in some way and simply as a matter of mercy, uh, basically the court should change it. And here we're talking about the boards. Equity is a much broader consideration that um, the post-service conduct in some way explains why the in-service misconduct was an aberration, was not um, true to the veteran's character, and really that the discharge, the less than honorable discharge that they received is um, unfair in a way that, uh, that simply 
should be rectified again in a in a manner of fairness or mercy or justice that uh, the board can make that change without actually saying they made a mistake. Um, it's not like the Hegel and Kurta memos saying that actually there was something. Um, there doesn't have to be PTSD, there doesn't have to be some sort of reason why it was unfair at the time, but rather you can look at purely um, post-service conduct or other parts of the discharge um, to explain why it was un it's unfair to keep the less than honorable discharge. So next slide. Thanks. All right, so as I said, the Wilkie memo is really the main uh, sort of organizing document for how to think about uh, these types of arguments. Um, in July 2018, DOD issued this guidance um, and it applies to requests made on equity, injustice, and clemency altogether. Um, my little story about the Wilkie memo and just what it means to be working in this context is I learned about the Wil Wilkie memo at one of these trainings a couple years ago, I think in 2019, when um, there, there were some folks from the boards who, who came to, to, to one of these um, BBA trainings and um, someone mentioned the Wilkie memo and everyone in the room was like, what are you talking about? We've never heard of this. There was no announcement. This is not something, it was not something that was easy to find. It was just sort of issued to the boards and, and no one, uh, told anyone else about it. So um, so you can find it online and I think all of you have received it um, in preparation for this training. And it's certainly a, a key part of how we think about these. But um, another reason why I'm so excited for the manual is to have all of these memos in one place. Um, and we are we're very much looking forward to a sort of more organized way of thinking about these things. So um, as you can see on the face of the, the Wilkie memo, um, it talks about the uh, sort of criminal justice perspective, but then it talks about how this applies to more than just those criminal convictions. But it uses a lot of the language of traditional clemency, it talks about second chances, um, it talks about uh, fundamental fairness, and it, uh, and it talks about how this is a very individualized assessment. It is very discretionary, um, unlike the, uh, the memos and guidances that apply to, um, to the cases like the Curta memo and Hegel memo that deal with error or impropriety. Um, these, these are really about a whole host of factors, some of which may apply, some of which may not. And it's, it's very much a, a sort of balancing test rather than factors to meet um, in other types of guidance. So just to list a little bit more, um, this is all again, from, just quoted from the memo itself. Um, it talks about rehabilitation and second chances and um, that there, the um, military is only supposed to punish to the extent necessary. And so there is some consideration of whether the punishment of a, of a less than honorable discharge and the collateral consequences that come from that um, is in fact appropriate. 
Um, and it also highlights, and this is something that um, you may have heard many, many times um, in, the, in the discussions of how we think about what an honorable discharge is, it explains that honorable discharge does not require either flawless service um, or uh, there's also discussion of how to be eligible for um, a, a, an upgrade or other correction based on the Wilkie memo. The um, post-service conduct need not be sort of this exemplary, amazing achievement. There can be um, discussion about character and some ability to talk about modest, um, modest behaviors other than, you know, you've gone out and become this amazing sort of lots of degrees and show, show them all the certificates. Although of course that doesn't hurt if you have that. Um, again, there's sort of a long laundry list of factors that are relevant um, and the boards are supposed to consider them. Um, it lists a whole lot of things that relate to the post-service conduct, um, time since misconduct, whether the person uh, has critical illness um, or is very old, talk about job history, service post-discharge, rehabilitation, that sort of thing. Um, there's also, again, some discussion about the consequences of the discharge itself um, and the conditions surrounding the discharge, aggravating factors, mitigating factors, um, the, whether the offense was violent or not. Um, there's specific language about, um, <clears throat> about drug cases related to uh, drug-related misconduct and that the passage of time may have changed the way we think about that kind of misconduct and that that's relevant as well. Um, and if there is, a, if it was a crime with a victim, uh, then the victim, if there is victim support or opposition, that is also relevant. Um, I think that's all on that slide. Uh, great, thank you. Um, and then what, what does this mean? So there's a whole list of things that you can talk about. Um, when you talk about how to actually get that in front of the the board, we're talking about evidence. What, what kind of evidence can you submit? Obviously, when we're talking about post-service conduct or even evidence related to the time period in service, you can, uh, of course, submit evidence that's not in the veteran service record. Um, that can include um, medical evidence, but it can also be things like letters of recommendation, character references, um, you can point to changed military policies or changed legal or, or societal standards. Um, and again, if you can point to um, a, super, a supervisor in the military who agrees and, and supports the, the um, application on the basis of equity, um, on the basis of injustice, um, then that is something that would also be quite relevant. Um, that is all I have on that one. Great. All right. There's just a lot of, of things. Again, it's just a very long list of things that, that the board can consider here. And so we're just trying to give you some ideas of things 
the, the basic takeaway is you can be creative here. You can think about what would be useful letters from all sorts of people, um, community service awards, employment records. Um, we have, we often will submit um, a criminal record or background check uh, that is just blank to show that, look, there's nothing there um, that itself can be quite useful. Um, some boards have taken to actually requesting um, uh, a background check if none has been provided and we can talk about how to deal with that later. But again, the, you can kind of submit whatever sort of evidence the rule, the federal rules of evidence do not apply. Um, so anything that you think would be persuasive or useful is fair game. Renee gave you a great overview. Um, one thing then that our clinic did, and I had um, wonderful help from a research assistant and Harvard Law School student, uh, Franklin Lee, uh, who went back and reviewed three years of decisions or nearly three years of decisions under the Wilkie Memorandum to try to draw out what are some initial conclusions that we can make about um, what effect this is having on the board and, and what can we as advocates do to best make use of the memorandum. Now, there are um, still some limited number of decisions. It only has been not even three years um, and the boards were slower this past year in particular in adjudicating cases and posting their decisions online due to the pandemic. Um, and so I will say that some of our conclusions are preliminary and we're still trying to figure out how it is this really works. Um, but what he did, um, Franklin, was he reviewed the decisions from the last three years to screen for whether the Wilkie Memorandum or a post-service argument was presented, what that sort of argument consisted of, what evidence was submitted in support, and whether the relief was then granted or denied. Um, some high level takeaways before we get a little bit more into the details is that a lot of veterans are presenting arguments that fall within the ambit of the Wilkie Memorandum. Um, they're often doing so though as one of multiple arguments that are being presented. So perhaps um, there's an argument about in-service mental health that falls under the Hagel and Curta Memorandum as well as a post-service argument. The boards certainly are referencing the Wilkie Memorandum, but it's not yet clear that the memo itself um, is sufficient to grant relief, certainly not at all of the boards. Um, and it's absolutely clear though, that if it is going to be successful, there has to be evidence. You, um, it can't just be sort of a, a plain statement that this should apply. There are certain evidence, including what um, is in, you know, most most importantly, what's mentioned in the memo um, that needs to be brought forward for the board to give credence to that. And what we've seen, and we'll go into more detail about, is that some types of evidence are given more weight than others. So, what we found matters in cases that were successful. Um, or rather, it was much more likely, cases were much more likely to be successful if they included a statement from the veteran themselves, um, if they included letters of support or character references, 
if the veteran happened to be, um, have military service after uh, their less than honorable discharge, which the where is not um, impossible, um, especially in perhaps a, a guard or reserve component. Uh, volunteer work also seem to be given a lot of credit by the boards, um, especially if that volunteer work was done in service of other veterans or service members. And certainly if a veteran um, applicant were able to check box, check many boxes of um, types of supporting post-service evidence, that also was given additional weight. Uh, and in fact, one thing that we noticed from, um, for example, the Naval Discharge Review Board is checking only sort of one category of type of post-service evidence wasn't enough to get over the hurdle and, and win on a Wilkie memo type argument, but checking multiple boxes was actually necessary in order to, to be successful. Now, of course, um, there is a, uh, we're drawing these conclusions that are preliminary, and it could be that the ability to put together these types of evidence um, in support of an application is actually just an indication that someone had an attorney or they were particularly well organized and they otherwise were in a better place to be presenting their arguments. Um, so I don't mean to say that if you can check all these boxes, you will be successful. It may be that it's, it's signaling something else. Um, and of course, we also can't, based on the face of the decisions, um, tell exactly what these types of evidence always say. Um, and so it may be that, uh, you know, we do have to think carefully, well, what is a good letter of support, not just check that checking any box will be sufficient. Um, uh, but there are indications that being developing a good post-service record can be helpful and obviously and then demonstrating it is, is important. There were some things in the Wilkie memo that seemed to be positive, but perhaps not have as much of an impact. Um, so evidence of employment, education, and sort of generic character evidence, while helpful, didn't seem to move the needle as much as those prior categories of having evidence of the veteran statement, um, the veteran's own experience and volunteer work example. As a, um, and then some other takeaways from this initial analysis are that there are significant differences in the way that the individual review boards are implementing the Wilkie Memorandum. The, and this is, this is actually true for all the memoranda. And, and one of the important things to recognize as an advocate in the discharge upgrade realm is that each board um, has a little bit of its own character, even within the same service branch. The, the Board for Correction of Naval Records and the Naval Discharge Review Board have, a, have different takes on the different memoranda and are, are embracing them at different speeds and in different ways. So for example, one thing that we see is that um, the overall impact of presenting a Wilkie memo argument um, has had a differential impact um, on the Army versus the Navy boards, where 56% of Army Discharge Review Board applications were granted, where some sort of post-service accomplishment was presented, versus only 11% of Navy Discharge Review Board applications. Now, again, this isn't saying that's 
um, in cases where there was that was the sole argument presented. Um, there may be other arguments that were being presented that also may have moved the needle, um, but it definitely um, is clear that the boards are individually looking at these um, types of arguments in a different way. And the boards also seemed to have a slightly different perspective on whether a Wilkie memo or post-service conduct type argument alone could um, be uh, sufficient to grant an upgrade in many. Um, so at the Army Records Corrections Board, the Army BCMR, 37% um, of applicants who presented a, a, a post-service conduct um, argument where it was a primary, it was sort of the primary factor were successful versus only 3% at the Discharge Review Board. And this is still in the Army. Um, and whereas there's also higher success rates if you're presenting it as one of many arguments um, before these boards. A couple additional takeaways just that came away from such a extensive review of a, of a few thousand decisions um, is that the boards under the Wilkie Man Memorandum when they're granting relief are often sort of doing what we think of as one-step relief. So they're not going from an other than honorable discharge up to a fully honorable, they're going OTH to general, general to honorable. We can question whether that is a good practice. I, I personally don't think so, but that is what we are seeing. Um, and so it's an important thing to understand for counseling clients about both um, what to ask for and what's reasonable to expect. That said, if a veteran asked for an honorable discharge, um, they were much more likely to receive it. So there doesn't seem to be a strategic advantage to only asking for a general discharge if you have an OTH. Better to ask for the honorable and have the board decide what it is they want to grant um, than to sort of limit the type of relief that the board will think that you might be eligible for. And then um, this might be intuitive, but um, is always good to have confirmed that having legal counsel does have a positive impact on um, the success rates at the board. So with that, I will um, stop sharing my screen and turn it over to Jacob and Eileen, who can talk about a case, um, veterans case that they worked on, and then we'll come back together to talk a little bit more about the strategy together. Thanks, Dana. So Jake and I are here to tell you a little bit about a veteran that we represented pro bono. Um, I started when I was an associate at Goodwin. Um, I left um, while the application was still pending and switched to the public defender's office where I practice now. And thankfully, Jake was able to step in and back clean up and bring us home and get an honorable discharge for our veteran. Um, so I want to um, just share my screen. Oh, sorry, I thought that I could share my screen. If I can share my screen, that would be great. You should be all set now, Eileen. Okay, thank you. All right, so, um, you know, we're just presenting a case study just to give you some tips and tricks of what happened with us. So in 1981, our veteran um, enlisted in the Air Force and he served for about seven years um, before he received a bad conduct discharge for a single positive test of cocaine. Um, and he then, you know, lived a life of um, good character, but not anything um, amazing, <laughs> uh, you know, not to 
uh, say that he, you know, living a, a simple life is not a good one, but you know, he, it's not like he went out and got amazing degrees or had awards or was featured in newspapers or he, he just was a man who lived a simple life with his family and worked hard. Um, and, you know, did small things to contribute to his community and his friends. Um, so, you know, initially in interviewing him, I was a little bit worried, oh my gosh, is this, you know, going to be enough for something like clemency? Um, but I, I think this will help people that are struggling, wondering, you know, do I have enough evidence to show you, yes, try for it because we were successful. Um, in initially interviewing him, one of the things obviously that I brought up was, you know, why he might want to apply for a discharge upgrade. And really it was just the shame and the stigma of having that bad conduct discharge. And, you know, he had many other people in his family that had served in the military, his father and all of his brothers had served in the different branches. And, um, you know, it was just basically the, the shame and the stigma. There, were, there was nothing concrete in terms of like, a benefit he couldn't get or something else that he tried to receive that he couldn't. So it wasn't as if there was, you know, something specific that we were looking for. And, and in our um, brief, we did just mention the shame and stigma. That was the reason why he was going to be requesting a, a discharge upgrade. And so, you know, in talking with him, we talked about his life, um, his work, what he did for his job, things like that, people in his life, who we could ask, you know, for affidavits for support for. Um, and I'll go into that a little bit um, in a second, but, you know, just really talking with him about, okay, what type of evidence could we present? Um, so going back to the timeline, once I had, you know, collected all of that evidence with him and kind of come up with a strategy, we submitted our application December 22nd, 2017. So before the Wilkie memo. Um, and while our application was pending, the Wilkie memo came out um, and it was, you know, our application was pending for a very long time, possibly maybe because the Wilkie memo came out in the middle of it. I'm not really sure. I do know at one point the board reached out to me saying that I didn't submit some type of evidence that actually was in the record. So I you know, submitted a quick letter just kind of providing the citations to the record that actually were there. Um, but it took us until February 12th, 2019 to have some movement on the application. Um, by that time I'd left Goodwin and Jake was there. And unfortunately we received an advisory opinion um, from an Air Force JAG who recommended denial. Um, and then Jake submitted a really amazing letter response um, addressing that recommended denial. And then pretty shortly after that, we received a favorable decision from the board upgrading um, the discharge to honorable. So our veteran went all the way from a bad conduct discharge to honorable. And so I wanted to show you the table of exhibits to kind of give you a flavor of what we submitted in his um, brief and on his behalf. So obviously the first exhibit was the military personnel file. Um, luckily, my veteran had gone to Harvard first and they had the whole file for me. So when I started this pro bono case, I didn't have to get that, that I was already working off the file. So that was great. Um, and what I did need to do was review that file really closely and look at um, all the different issues that were in it. Like, for example, he didn't have a hundred percent, you know, positive service record. There were many pages in there where his productivity was being critiqued and other issues. And so I tried to, in the narrative section of the brief, really highlight all the positive parts um, of that personnel file and talk about the good things that were happening when he was in service. 
I submitted photographs of him um, and when he was in service and then afterwards with his family, just to, you know, you're not probably going to be appearing in person. And so I think photographs, if you have them, are a great way to put a, a face to the, you know, just the words that are on a page. Um, obviously the letter for, or excuse me, the affidavit from our veteran. Um, we had a letter of support from his brother who served and was honorably discharged. Um, other letters of support from his daughter, father, um, other brothers. We also had a letter of support from his employer. Um, so our veteran worked for 30 years after his discharge um, for a trucking company. He did long haul trucking. Um, he actually did it for various different companies. And in interviewing my client, you know, one of the things that I was able to uncover was, okay, so he was, you know, discharged for having this single positive test of cocaine. Okay, so what can we say to kind of, you know, combat that? Well, as a long haul truck, uh, trucker, you are periodically drug tested. And so we could talk about this long period where he was a long haul trucker undergoing drug tests every year. So that was a good way to be able to combat the you know single positive test of cocaine basically proving without you know having you know direct evidence of him never using substances again but at least suggesting that he had never used substances again right by showing that he'd had this long period of employment um, that was successful and that he'd been periodically drug tested for um, we also were able to um, obtain um, a certificate of adoption. So our, our client had adopted a special needs child. So um, one of the ways that we talked about that wonderful act that he and his wife had done was by actually putting in the exhibits, the decree of adoption. Um, so further, again, supporting one of those good things that he had. Um, and the affidavits from him, you know, or for him, we're really talking about these, you know, smaller acts of service that he'd done, you know, when he adopted this young child with special needs, he didn't get, you know, an award or anything, but everyone would agree that that is a great thing to do. And some of the other affidavits talked about, you know, him volunteering his time at different churches and, you know, just helping out friends in need. One of the affidavit or one of the letters of support was about our veteran, you know, buying diapers and food for his friend when she was a young single mother in need. And so just kind of little things showing his good character, but not anything like awards or certificates or anything like that. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to mention was that we did get the FBI background check and state background check for him. Um, I got obviously the Massachusetts background check, that's where he was from, but I also wanted to get the FBI background check because he was a long haul trucker and obviously going to many other states. So I wanted to include that just as, as further evidence that he didn't have a criminal record. So that was what we submitted. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Jake to talk a little bit about the letter of response that we submitted after the recommendation of denial. Thanks, Eileen. Uh, just jumping into a little bit of um, thinking back into how this happened. I, I know you left sometime in, in, in the summer, you left Goodwin sometime in the, in the summer or fall of uh, 2018. I jumped in late uh, 2018 on, on this matter. And I think what was always very helpful was my ability to be able to talk with you, Eileen. And I'll say that to everybody. Uh, I, I doubt you'll have the opportunity of a handoff or of a built-in uh, you know, co-attorney that you can turn to that's knowledgeable. But uh, 
you should definitely reach out to legal services at Harvard or somebody that you know that has done this before and, and really lean on them because it, it was extremely helpful for me and I, and I have no doubt that it would be for you. Um, so jumping in on this uh, as part of Goodwin, I, this, is, this was the first time I'd ever done this and I heard from everybody that the chances of getting this through are extremely hard. Discharge updates are extremely hard. And, and you also heard that from uh, Dana and Renee. I, uh, let, me, let me bring up, because I, I pulled up something this morning. Let me see if I can use my uh, share screen. Yep. Okay. Yes. So you can go to the, the boards. You know, they have their reading room. And let me see if this is working. Is it, is it coming up? So let me know if you're not seeing this, but I just pulled this up this morning from, from the boards and our decision came in uh, 2019, July 2019. So I pulled this up and, and it gives you snapshots. And according to the review board, our review board was Air Force Board for Correction Military Records. And our claim was not mental health or sexual assault. Uh, in that period, there were 21 uh, applicants and only two had their relief granted. So, so 10% in the, for our, uh, in our period when, when the board adjudicated our case. So just one other person uh, got relief granted. So yeah, uh, th this is tough. Um, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat that. And at that time, I knew it was tough, but it's definitely worth it. Um, and I, in many ways, perhaps the, the biggest thing you can take from this is, yeah, it's tough, but give, give it your best shot. Um, and, and it works for us. And, and we hope that uh, percentages will get better as time moves on. But uh, put your best foot forward for your client. Um, so returning back to the history of it, I, I took over. And within a few weeks in February, let me see if we can pull this up. In February uh, of 2019, I'll see if I can, if I can switch this. Um, excuse me, just switching it to something else. So in, in February 2019, not, not too long after I, I came on, uh, sitting around uh, twirling my fingers, but we actually got a a, this is what the the AFLOA, uh, the Air Force uh, Legal Operations Agency, they, they sent us this short page and a half letter. I'm just showing you the second page. Uh, most of it, 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 there's nothing to it. Uh, just saying that they reviewed the record. But right there, the recommendation doesn't say much at all. It just said that there was no basis to set aside the, uh, for our client, it was a special court martial sentence back in the 80s after his one-time use of cocaine. And they just said, hey, we've reviewed his, his record, uh, nothing, no basis, it, it should just be denied. Uh, and this brings up a point about your strategy. At that, at that time, uh, I reached out to Eileen and you know, what should the strategy be in our response letter? Use these response letters to, to again, rebut anything to remind the, the board who you are, why your client deserves this. Uh, but we, we thought strongly and we said, let's just focus on clemency. We, we wondered whether we should put in the fact that, hey, it's, it's now 20, 
19, uh, one use of cocaine shouldn't have been a bad, con bad conduct discharge. Uh, you should think of this differently. But considering what we had put in our application, our focus on clemency, we decided that the best way forward was, was to ignore that argument about the changing times and just say, uh, hey, board, uh, we know we did wrong, but it's been 25 plus years uh, and our client has been squeaky clean. He hasn't been uh, you know, some amazing person that saved 10 people uh, in the past 10 years you know, through some work that he's done or amazing credentials, but he, he's, he's been a decent individual that, that hasn't done anything wrong since then. Um, so that's what we focused on. We also, well, I also, uh, you know, talking to Eileen, she said, go to the, go to the reading room. The boards, I, I'm sure you're all aware of these, this reading room. It's, it's quite, uh, I, I think it's an embarrassment. I'll just be honest to everybody here. The, the reading room for, for the, the boards, uh, and let's see if I can just pull this up. All right, th there it is. Uh, you know, back in time to, to the 90s. And you know, in some ways, I, I tried to look through this a little bit this morning. I think it's worse than than when I was searching for stuff back in uh, you know in, in response to the the denial, excuse me, the recommend, recommended denial letter. Um, but I, I spent a good time using it, and we just wanted to focus on clemency. But if, if we just could, I mean, we had no idea, but we just looked to see if we could find anyone in any sort of similar situation that had that had cocaine history or busted on, doesn't have to be cocaine, could be any drug. And given the long period of time, 25 plus years, uh, their, their discharge was upgraded. And, and it just happened. I, I, I can't remember the exact details of, of where I found it, but I, I found a case that was on, on point, on the nose. Um, when you read that case, though, that they did grant uh, discharge upgrade, you could tell that he had done some pretty amazing things. However, the, the, this precedence that I used, uh, he had also distributed cocaine. He hadn't just taken it once. He had been convicted of, of selling cocaine, using, selling, and his, his also his, his, um, the record of decision included mentions that he also used and sold marijuana. So I think that that was key. We, we, we got very lucky. I'll just be honest right there. We, we just got really lucky. We found that case. And I think coupled with the, we're just going to go full hilt with, with clemency. Our, our client is saying, yes, I know I did wrong, uh, but it's been 25 plus years. And let's, you know, this is, let me pull back to, uh, to our presentation. But, uh, and we, we distributed, I, I hope you all have uh, copies, or you should have copies of redacted, our letter response, as well as our initial uh, petition filed by Eileen. You should have those. And that, you can see it here. I'm not, I'm not gonna read it to you, but that was my response was just in a few paragraphs. Um, again, this is all about your clemency bringing them in uh, to uh, 
bring them into the fact that there is precedence. So just a one-two shot, clemency, precedence, and and then we threw it out there. Uh, you know, I, I had was going to go through it in more, but thinking about it, I, I don't think that that's really helpful. Um, and so that was it. Uh, you know, we sent that out in March 15th. And a few, I think a few weeks after that, we heard about the Wilkie memo. So we, we did not rely on it at all. We did not speak to it at all uh, in a response letter or of course our initial petition. And this was, this was it. This was the key line in their decision, which uh, you should also have, but let us know if you don't. And the board is persuaded the applicant developed into a productive member of society since leaving the service. Based on his lifetime accomplishments, we believe the continued stigma of his bad conduct discharge is unduly harsh and no longer serves any useful purpose. Uh, it, it, it really, it did actually surprise me. It, it shocked me. Um, we were ecstatically happy, uh, Eileen and I. Uh, I. I would just add one more thing. We did not specifically request a uh, honorable discharge. Uh, considering the, just the low percentages and considering our posture and that we're throwing ourselves to the feet of this board and acknowledging what we did wrong. Uh, we just, we just wanted some upgrade and they, they took it upon themselves to, to give us the honorable discharge. So I, I know that that uh, belies some of what was uh, presented earlier, but I, I just wanted to throw out uh, what happened there. Um, Actually, Jake, I don't mean to correct oh, you. We did, we did request oh, honorable uh, because Dana is an amazing uh, oh, to us, and I basically just do whatever she tells me to do. <laughs> and she requests, she told us to request honorable, which I admit I was like, uh, there is no way we're gonna get this. This is that is really, you know, a hail mary. And like Dana was saying, you know, there's this idea as lawyers that well, we shouldn't ask for too much, right? Because then we're just gonna like they're gonna think we're ridiculous and they're not gonna pay attention to us anymore. But Dana really pushed me and said, no, like you should request honorable, like request the maximum basically, just request every, you know, the ideal scenario and we did and we got it. And that, I was shocked that we got that. I, I thought it was gonna be something, you know, in the middle. Eileen, my apologies, it tells you how, how memory can be, can be twisted so quickly. Uh, I, I think in some ways, I, you know, I was thinking, I, we didn't do it in a response letter. So I think that was in the, in the initial petition. Um, that, that's on me. Thank, thank you for correcting that. Uh, for the very least, we didn't uh, harp on it in our response letter. Maybe I should say that. Uh, yes. Just everyone pretend I said that originally. Okay. Um, that's, that's all. Uh, I wish we could, you know, show you some, something that, brilliant strategy or or it was just it's just a tale of hard work and and some luck and in our case it worked out uh and as you can imagine our our client couldn't couldn't stop hugging us couldn't stop uh praising us and you you just love it when you see a happy client i'll stop there uh dana i, I see you appeared i'll i'll give it back to you well, it wasn't to slow you down uh, or, or, or stop you at all. Um, so I do want to say again, congratulations so much. I know it really did mean to this veteran um, and you both did fantastic advocacy for him. Um, and it was 
truly life-changing to get this sort of recognition after so many years. So that I will invite um, Renee to also pop back on and want to uh, dive into sort of just into talking about the strategic considerations. Um, Jake, do you mind if I switch with you in terms of sharing screen? Um, yeah, take over, please. Great. Um, all right, I'll go there. Um, but please, um, there are some questions that we have come up with to sort of try to talk through, but if people have questions about um, using the Wilkie Memorandum and things that are on their mind, please start adding them to the Q&A because I think we'll just sort of roll until 1.30 in terms of um, really diving in. So one question maybe, and I'll um, start with, um, I think a question that comes up for a lot of board um, pro bono uh, attorneys and um, Renee wondering if you have thoughts on this is, you know, a lot of veterans, it's, I, I think of sort of different categories. There's clients who have like really strong post-service history where you're, there's really kind of no question, like you're gonna make an argument, the question is like how to present it really well. Um, there are ones who have sort of a, a mix and there can be a question about, well, how do I, how much do I have to disclose? How much to highlight? And then there's, there's some clients who really just post-service have, have struggled. It's been really tough. Um, and, the, and the bad discharge hasn't helped anything. Um, it's been a ball and chain that they've been sort of dragging around. And whether, you know, if we're looking at the Wilkie Memorandum, is the struggle itself actually a bad fact? Does it mean that you shouldn't present uh, a post-service conduct argument? Um, or is there a way to sort of make something out of, make, make lemonade out of lemons? Yeah, sure. Since, since you uh, called out my name, I will start there. But um, I do think that the Wilkie memo, because it is so comprehensive in the, th in the factors that can be considered, is kind of a, a in some ways, it's an opportunity to be as um, compelling in your story as you can be, no matter what that story is. And so, I, you know, the way I think of it is there's a little bit of a, you know, heads I win, tails you lose kind of way of thinking about bad facts is that on the one hand, if the client has had sort of, um, you know, like the, the client we've been discussing and the case study we've been discussing specifically has been, you know, since this one incident has just led a really um, productive life that, that has really done a lot of good things, even if they haven't been sort of public and splashy, that that's one story and then there is the story of folks who have struggled and I think that particularly when it's paired with um, uh, a liberal consideration argument uh, an argument related to uh, mental health conditions for example that's a case the kinds of cases that we in, in our clinic deal with a lot um, that in itself is also a story about how collateral consequences are too severe if someone was unable to access um, healthcare because of their less than honorable discharge. Um, if, for example, uh, they were unable to be employed um, and that really caused them to struggle for a, for a long time, that is in itself a story to tell about why you can see that that the 
again, the sort of factors that are less about what have you achieved, but more about the conditions of, of the discharge and whether the discharge was unfair. Um, so I think that uh, for, for us, you know, we try to tell whatever story our client has. Um, and we sometimes have, as you say, sort of that, that mix, most, most folks have a mixed story to tell. I'm just figuring out which is the most compelling and also the most true for the client that they feel like that's the story that, that rings the most true to them is, is important for us as well. Um, but we, we sometimes have sort of almost both stories at once, right? Someone who we've had clients who struggled with addiction or other things for quite a while after discharge, um, and then have recently, um, much more recently sort of hit rock bottom, turn, turned a corner, any of those sort of things that we talk about in that narrative arc that, that we like to hear. And, um, and then we tell that story as well. So both the story of the hardship as well as even if it's much shorter, um, a period of um, they're, they're really working to get their life back in order. And sometimes it's just things like, see, they're now, you know, going to therapy regularly and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to go to school and they're, try, you know, they're working to sort of make amends in their lives and in their relationships with family members and friends. And that's the story we tell. And, you know, as we've mentioned, I think a couple of times, it's really hard to tell what, um, what will be successful. And it sometimes feels like the story you're telling is not super incredible and maybe that's not enough, but because it is such a new memo in particular, and we don't have a lot of data and it's kind of a roll of the dice with which board you happen, you know, not just which board you're in front of, but also which board members you happen to get that day. Um, I think it, we kind of just try it all. Jake and Eileen, how did um, you think about this in your client's case in terms of how much you shared about the mixed post-service history um, and sort of the standard of he'd done good deeds, but um, you know, had not cured cancer? Um, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky in some ways that there was, you know, no kind of bad facts in his post-service history. You know, there were no like, you know, criminal convictions or episodes where, you know, he'd been, you know, where, you know, had some type of, you know, I don't know, hospitalization or something else from drug use or, or any evidence that he'd ever like use drugs again. Um, I will say there was one piece of evidence that we really struggled with presenting, which was, you know, evidence about his participation in AA. Um, and he had done a lot in AA and had a sponsor and had, you know, coins. And we considered like, should we get an affidavit from a sponsor? Should we get, you know, basically to, you know, take pictures of all the different like coins he'd received for how long he participated in AA and things like that. And in the end, we decided not to do that because we didn't want to, we wanted to focus on like the single positive test of cocaine as more of just like, an aberration in his life versus like making it the story be one of like someone who like had really struggled with drug addiction. Um, Cause we felt like there was, there was no, you know, it's not like he had any subsequent like criminal convictions for possessing drugs or anything else like that. So we just instead tried to focus on his life and how well he'd done and having a stable job and a family and you know, doing, doing well and like the simple acts of just being a good person in day-to-day -day life. So that was a, a decision that we made to, to not kind of harp on his 
um, participation in AA and things like that. But I mean, I don't know. Other people might have thought it differently. That's just how we came out. Yeah. One other, um, I always think a little bit also about the perspective question, like our roles as attorneys, as not just advocates, but also counselors. And the Wilkie Memorandum sets out these um, certain factors. And if you know that being engaged in community service or having stable employment or being able to show that you aren't actively using drugs is a positive factor to the boards, do you have the conversation with a client to say, you may be struggling with your sobriety now, but if you were able to make efforts and show that you were able to maintain sobriety, that would present a different picture to the board. Um, you know, I'm curious if you think about, um, that was the question in, in your matter, Eileen or Jake, but um, just how do you counsel a client that this is one aspect of discharge upgrade law where they actually have control over what picture they present to the board, that they can build a record potentially that then um, gives them greater chances for an upgrade. Sure. Uh, it's, it's always, I'll tell you what, I think everybody on, on the call knows that, that if you have a great client that works with you, cooperates with you, that, that, that you, can, you can do a lot more. And our client uh, very much was like that. And I, I think if in that type of situation, if, if the need did exist, um, I, I think that that would have been no problem. And, and everyone should be thinking about uh, such creative um, ways of, of augmenting your, your petition. Uh, you, just don't, you just don't know what is going to click. And even with our decision, uh, we, we know we had the precedence, we had the 25 plus years of squeaky clean, nothing wrong, um, but we don't know what in that is what grabbed them. I think the precedence was powerful, but they, they could have distinguished it. I have no doubt that they could have if they so desired. But uh, there was something there and you need to, I, I wouldn't say throw, throw everything at them because you can't do that, then then they'll just feel like uh, you know you don't you don't have uh, you know what's what's real here, but you, you do have to be smart about it. But you do, you do need to put up as, as many reasons something that they they can they can put their hook on. Uh, yeah, Dana. One other. Um, oh, what? Um, oh, no, I was wondering if we got a question. Uh... Yeah, I was typing an answer to it, but I, I can just say that. So one of the questions we, uh, we got was, um, how long after a discharge uh, does a veteran have to apply for an upgrade? And um, for the discharge review boards, um, there's a statute of limitations of 15 years from the date of discharge. So it has to be done within that 15 years. For the boards for correction of military or naval records, um, there's a three-year statute of limitations, um, but it's waivable. And so in effect, it, it is waived. Um, and for these types of cases, um, they almost have to be waived, right, for, for things that are um, related to post-service conduct. Sometimes that can be decades. And so the, the BCMR you can kind of apply to no matter how long it's been since the discharge. 
And in fact, I think you'll, you can see this in the decision that uh, Jake and Eileen shared. The first paragraph said, there is a three-year statute of limitations period, but it makes no sense to apply it here because we usually, at least the Air Force BCMR's practice is, um, you need at least 15 years to grant uh, an upgrade based on clemency. Now, I don't know whether, I think it's a question about whether 15 years is an appropriate time, especially given the Wilkie Memorandum, but that had been their practice pre-Wilkie and certainly was obviously still in their standard template um, for clemency-based upgrades at the time that um, they got the, the favorable upgrade. How do you think, um, and maybe I'll throw this to you, Renee, um, since you're sort of advising a lot of students on putting together Wilkie Memo-based um, arguments now, is how do you even think about organizing an argument given the grab bag that is the Wilkie Memorandum? I mean, our slides were just putting all these different factors and trying to make some sense out of um, uh, this, this broad spectrum that the DOD um, tried to address. And that can make it hard because it's not the clean narrative that say you have in the CURTA memorandum of you know, trauma, misconduct, mitigating factors. Um, in fact, it can be hard to figure out you know, how do you, what, what do you highlight and how do you even organize it in a brief? Yeah, well, um, my students actually have have realized that like they can see from like the way I tilt my head. I'm about to ask them like, well, what do you think? So that's how I deal with it, um, which is perhaps more accurately a. It depends. Um, it really depends on what you have. Right, there is a grab bag, and it means that most veterans will not have something relevant in every single category. Um, yeah, I, I can't even think of, of what the facts would be that you could actually check all of the boxes. Um, you have to um, sort of think about what makes a compelling story. Um, and, you know, Eileen was talking about, well, do you bring in the AA evidence or not? What, how do we want to tell this story? How do we want to highlight it? I mean, I think that's very much the way we think about it as well. There are things that you could introduce, um, but you don't have to. And so you're, if you're trying to create a sort of story that is understandable and uh, relatable to a board. And I think that is at the end of the day, sort of what you're trying to do to, to make a story where you, this person is just someone you want to help um, and you, the board thinks that this person uh, deserves a, a better um, a, a better characterization because of who they are in some way and so that's we think about it as maybe the story is look this was a long time ago the military has changed a lot you know we've had clients where the story is is one of you know the military's um, discipline and the way it treats minorities has changed a lot. And, and so this is not a fair representation anymore of how the military would treat this person now. That's the story we sometimes tell. Sometimes we tell a story of look at how, um, how much they've, they've changed over time or that this was an aberration because it just happened this once. And we kind of pick one of uh, these kinds of stories and, and coalesce. Um, and sometimes it's just, you know, we talk especially if they have friends and people who are willing to support statements, talking to them and understanding how they see this person, it, it kind of gives us a, a way of thinking about how to show that person to the board. I'll share from my own practice, uh, I very much, I do think 
the boards, especially remembering that they are not lawyers, um, very much, um, and even if they were lawyers, I think all people are very much convinced by narrative and storytelling. And so the, to the extent you can put together a story about why what happened happened and what the person has done with their life um, since service or what their true character is, that's, that is really effective. I will throw out there that I have also tried in one application that is still pending, a sort of Wilkie memo by bullet point approach to the, that specific argument, whereas the rest of it is because he does check a lot of boxes, but it was hard to come up with what the narrative is about it um, and wondering whether the board, which is mass adjudicating cases and um, sort of trying to quickly process all of the evidence that you submit to them, whether having something where, and I mean, literally there are some bullet points where I say the Wilkie memo mentions lots of factors, job history, you know, mention in two sentences what his job history is. And then I hit, you know, a couple of, of other points, just trying it out, whether that might make a, um, difference in the way that they view it because they say, oh, actually this is robust because I can see how many boxes you have checked off. Now we'll never get the sort of detailed feedback from the board that will tell us whether that was, I think, successful or not. But it sort of, it seemed to make some sense in this particular veterans case. And so um, it's, we're all making judgment calls. So I wanted to put that in the mix as well. Um, we've got another question um, that uh, I want to just see if anyone has a particular response to um, saying that the stress of the military judicial system itself um, and the stigma of being discharged with um, other than honorable or even, you know, I would imagine this would be true of um, BCD, for example, as well, that that itself can cause stress and depression. Can, can we use these as explanations for substance abuse um, after uh, discharge, for example. Um, any thoughts? I don't have a clear answer to this. I will share my own perspective, which is one to very much agree with the question that the stress of being discharged of, um, especially if it feels unfair or unjust um, to the veteran itself is, is a, can be a form of trauma that, um, that can impact them and, and and impact their lives. And so it, in terms of whether this is, this very much is many veterans narratives, I think, and, and what feels true to them. And the question is then uh, strategically as advocates, is that something we can present? And I, I wouldn't say categorically no, but I also have um, concerns about the way board members would view this because I think they would say, well, if, don't don't come come complaining to me like this is your just desserts this is what you you got yourself into this situation i think there very much is a sense of personal responsibility that they place on veterans um if you're not able to put other types of um mitigating and factors and, and context into the picture that explain what was going on now it may be different to say they struggled with substance abuse for a period of time but then were able because of the, the, the stress of discharge, but then we're able to pick themselves up. Um, but I'm not sure that explaining it, that this sort of in that cabin vision um, would 
be particularly sympathetic to the boards, um, rightly or wrongly. And yeah, my, go ahead. I was going to say what one thing, you know, building off what Dana said, you know, you could talk about the stigma, I think, without offending them, certainly, you know, the stigma of having the discharge and also like other things, like, for example, not having access perhaps to health care or other things that they would have had maybe if they had had an honorable discharge or, or treatment or other options that they were precluded from having. Um, and also, I wonder if you would be able to get you know, if they're currently in treatment, some of the clinical notes or some type of letter that a clinician could put together talking about from a clinical perspective from substance, someone who treats people with substance use disorder, you know, what their perspective was in terms of how the stress of the bad conduct discharge or, or the negative discharge had had on their lives without focusing so much on the unfairness of the system, more like the repercussions of what's happened to them. And it's, continuing impact on their ability to maintain sobriety. And, you know, maybe this doesn't apply to this particular situation, but I'd always think it's important, you know, one decision is, you know what, we can't do this now. Uh, I, I think we should come back in two, three years from now, reassess and reapply. So that, that might be ultimately what, what you tell to the client. Um, you know, without knowing any specifics here, but just, just something that that can be a decision, a perfectly fine decision and a perfectly necessary decision uh, in order to get, you know, the, the, the good decision from the boards uh, years from now. Yeah. Renee, I wondered also, I know we have a question pending, but um, whether either you wanted to jump in or also to talk about whether, um, you know, you probably have seen the cut and paste um, uh, statement from many of the boards that they don't want to hear that there's been this bad effect of having an OTH discharge or other less than honorable discharge that you're unable to access healthcare or benefits, or you really want the upgrade because you'd like to be able to access those systems that would be very helpful to your recovery. Um, and, but the Wilkie memo says that considering collateral consequences is important um, or or is something that you can do um, and so is that is that a framing or, or how are you thinking about that yeah I mean you hit on exactly my frustration with this because the Wokimo expressly talks about collateral consequences of um, of a less than honorable discharge as being relevant to the discussion but also one of the main collateral consequences that a lot of our clients have is the impact on VA benefits and other types of access to other types of benefits and and then being told well that's not a reason to get an upgrade um, is intensely frustrating but I think the key then and what we're trying to do is again this I sort of mentioned the Wilkie memo kind of was just floated out there without a lot of fanfare um, and we're we are in our way trying to sort of get the boards to think about um, the Wilkie memo more um, not just more expansively, but more consistently and thoroughly and really consider all of the, uh, the bullet points that it has. And so it's, if we're making that argument, we do try to tie it explicitly to the Wilkie memo to make it very clear that this is related to the collateral consequences argument and not sort of, I think what the boards are used to seeing is sort of a, a, a pro se applicant just explaining that the reason why they want an upgrade is solely because of 
VA benefits or some other kind of benefit. And, and so if that's the only argument that isn't very persuasive. So I think there is a, a more comprehensive way of, of thinking about uh, collateral consequences. Um, and it, it is this sort of this tricky thing of saying, this was unfair, but we're, we're not necessarily um, trying to make a broader statement about the unfairness or stress or trauma of the military justice writ large. Um, the, the question that's in the, um, in the Q&A right now that I wanna just also quickly take a chance at uh, before we, we end is that uh, a question about exemplary record with a single offense of drug use, um, is it helpful or is it risky to characterize a general discharge as an overly harsh punishment for first time offenses? Honestly, I think this is one of the things where the board and also frankly, the drug itself makes a big difference. Um, the Wilkie memo explicitly talks about marijuana use as um, one that may be particularly use, you know, uh, ripe for, um, an upgrade based on equity or clemency reasons. Um, but it, we've also certainly seen cases where certain boards are, think about um, certain drugs more, more harshly. Um, so like meth use is kind of one time meth use is probably going to be hard to say, well, it's overly harsh. Um, and so Percocet, it was probably somewhere in the middle there between the two about, about uh, in my opinion, but this is all very like, I don't know, what's my sense? Um, there's a lot of judgment and a lot of guesswork. I don't know if everyone falls in the same place of maybe that's an argument to make. Yeah. One um, thing I'd add is to consider the harshness of punishment in a broader context where it may be that Sure, a general is not an OTH, but how long have they lived with the general? What has been, and, and talking maybe concretely about the collateral consequences, um, focusing on um, those pieces of the Wilkie memo that as Renee highlighted. And so it there may be a, a space to consider different framings for the argument. One that is that could say it was unjust at the time, given the context. And there's another one that says, now, 10 years later, um, it is unjust because they have, they've sort of served whatever punishment was reasonable. Um, and those might play differently with the board. So we are now a few minutes past 1.30. Um, and so I'm going to stop this wonderful discussion um, here. And um, I'm sorry, cut, cut everyone off from asking more questions, but please, um, to all those who are working on um, pro bono cases um, with me or, or with other programs, do, um, as, as Jake and Eileen encouraged you to do, reach out to your um, case mentors. Um, we're always happy to talk through um, these strategic considerations because they're really, um, in so much of this practice area, there aren't always clear answers. And we really do just have to puzzle it through together. And that's um, what we are here for. Um, and then to say a big, big thank you, um, Renee, Eileen, and Jake for giving your time today for all the work you do on behalf of veterans and service members. Um, it's really been wonderful um, to get to hear from you all today. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thanks.